fun today is selection Sunday if you're a sports fan this is kind of the time of year that you live for we kick off March Madness and oh my goodness even with the Big Ten tourney it's been fun already that little bit of fun we had just a little bit ago kicking off hashtag who's your one and the t-shirts you should know that at first service we had a t-shirt cannon that ran out of juice ran out of air so uh, we didn't get to enjoy that so much the second hour, but uh, also, can we just give a round of applause, a thank you to Kyle and to Kim Carnes for leading us in that little bit of fun there. So the first hour, the whole t-shirt cannon thing, Kim's part was played by Bob Wittig. Some of you guys know Bob Wittig. He's a, uh, a senior saint in our church. I say that because he's earned it today. Actually, today he is 88 years young. Isn't that cool? Today's his 88th birthday. He celebrated it by being up here on the stage with a t-shirt cannon. It was awesome. So uh, NCAA tournament. I did a little bit of math watching uh, Bob practice up here and realized that the NCAA tournament was uh, it, in its infancy. The first year that it happened was 1939. Bob was, uh, it had, actually, it had been going for five years when Bob was born. He was five when it was birthed. How cool is that? So he has, he's lived through all of those NCAA tournaments. I, uh, as I was reading up on that tournament, listen, I'll root for just about any team. I'm a bit of a basketball mutt. I'll tell you more about that here in just a second. Except for, it pained me to discover that the NCAA tournament was kind of conceived by a coach. At the time, his name was Harold Olson. And at the time, he was the head coach for the Ohio State University. Yeah, some of you like that. I heard some boos. I'm with the boos on that. There's something about Ohio State fans. They just think they're really cool, I think. <laughs> when we first moved to Indiana in 2002, we moved to Bloomington. By the way, I was an Illinois fan when I moved over here. I'll talk more about that here. Just thank you. Thank you. Uh, moved to, to Bloomington in the shadow of IU, and I'll never forget standing in one of those uh, kind of hometown deli kind of places, and they had the football team's calendar on the wall, and it had an aerial shot of the stadium. Maybe some of you know where I'm going with this, and I'm looking at that, and I said to one of the guys with me, hey, like, that's a sea of red. I've never seen the stadium that full, actually, much less all red. 
And they said, oh yeah, every other year we take that shot when Ohio State fans come to town. <laughs> and that, not a big fan of that. We're kicking off hashtag Hoosier One. And uh, like I said, I grew up an Illinois fan, hearkening back to the days when I, I was playing some basketball in 1989 when the Flying Illini made it all the way to the Final Four. Perhaps some of you remember this season. Kendall Gill was leading the team. You had Nick Anderson. These are all four, uh, next NBA players. They made it. Uh, Marcus Liberty, Kenny Battle. Lowell Hamilton, Stephen Bardo, oh my goodness, it was fun to root them on. When we moved to Indiana, I guess I gave up a little bit of my Illinois allegiance, and now I've got two kids at IU, one's at IU Bloomington, one's at IU Purdue, or, or up in uh, Kokomo, IU Kokomo, and uh, so my allegiance has shifted just a little bit. Thursday, NCAA tournament, I'm gearing up for basketball. Some of you, I know you think I'm a giant IU fan. You think that my office looks like this. Got your Bobby Knight photo right here. My kids are looking at that. Wait a minute, that's supposed to be a picture of our family, and it's been replaced by Bobby Knight. This is not real. This was photoshopped. Actually, Daniel Shelton, our executive pastor, came into my office to take this picture. We were going to have a little fun with this. And he said, hey, he uses an Apple Watch, and so he's looking at this. He said, I just got notification that IU just won their first game in the NCAA, NCAA or the uh, um, Big Ten tourney. And what? You know, I woke up that morning and IU had like a 30% chance of even making it to the big dance. They win their first game. My plan was to, I was going to do that pastor thing and I was going to play both sides of the fence. I wasn't going to offend our Purdue fans and I wasn't going to get all geared up. I was going to wear, actually, I was going to wear a uh, Hoosiers jersey. Not these Hoosiers, but the movie Hoosiers. I had the old Hickory jersey, was planning to wear that. But then IU won on Thursday, and I thought Gene Hackman can jump in a creek. I'm going to wear this gear. So uh, that day I was, I was thinking, well, I'll just wear the socks, and I'll wear the Hoosier jersey. And then they won Thursday. And then they won Friday, and I was like, well, I'm going to put on the T-shirt, too. We're going to celebrate this. And yesterday, through the game yesterday against Iowa, I'm like, well, I've got a sweatshirt. Maybe I'll throw that on as well. Babe, do we still have sweatbands? Maybe there's an Indiana sweatband I can wear or a headband. This will be all kinds of fun. I was thinking that until the last two minutes of the game. <laughs> and then I dialed it back to just the T-shirt. Hashtag, who's your one? Let's put that up on the screen. Don't, don't focus too much on the Hoosier side of this hashtag. Purdue fans, I know you'll appreciate that. We're all Hoosiers, though, right? I mean, if you live in Indiana, we're a Hoosier. But what I want you to focus on for the next five weeks throughout this series is the one side of that hashtag. Who's your one? Why? Because Jesus, Jesus sees the one. If you read through the New Testament, we see over and over again when Jesus looks through the crowd and he locks eyes with the individual. He locks eyes with the one. He sees individuals. He, he sees through barriers like gender and money and cultural norms to see the heart of the one. Here's the question. Do we? 
This is Jesus we're talking about, but do we, do we even have eyes to see the one? Do we really see people the way that Jesus sees them? Do we even see them the way he sees us? This is a pretty important question. And we're going to wrestle with this all five weeks of this series because we want to lock eyes with our vision statement around here. We seek Jesus and we see you. Do we see the one? Here's my goal. Unapologetically. Can I just cast a little bit of vision? We're going to be talking about this actually for a lot of times this year. By the end of this calendar year, or before, but definitely by the end of this calendar year, I would like to make sure that anybody who calls Venture home, when we ask the question, who's your one? Who's your one? You answer that question with an honest answer. Well, it's Bob, or it's Susan, or it's Carl. There's a name to your one. Hashtag, who's your one that you're praying for? Hashtag, who's your one that when you lay your head down on the pillow to sleep at night, you think about that person that you've been praying for, and it breaks your heart because it breaks God's heart when you think about the truth that you don't know the security of their eternity. Who's your one that you've identified, that you're investing in, that you're inviting to join you into this life, this great calling of life that God has called you toward? We're going to be planting some seeds on this for the next five weeks, and we're going to make uh, some big seed plantings uh, in in this topic during our fall spiritual growth journey this year. But for this five-week series, today we're talking about the right one. Next week, by the way, you've got to put these in quotes, is going to be about the wrong one. Then uh, the following week, we're going to look at the obvious one. And the week after that, it's going to be one of those where in the world, that series we've been doing, the invisible one. Don't miss that week as well. And then the week before Easter, Palm Sunday weekend, we're going to talk about the hurting one. And we're kind of gearing up for Easter, the Super Bowl inside of Christianity. Today we're talking about the right one. We're talking about picking teams today. When we first moved to Indiana, I'll never forget our realtor showing us around. And I remember her sitting on the couch at one point and telling us a story about how she had shown Mike Davis a house. Now, we were in very different house buying categories. The houses we were looking at, I'm sure, were not quite as nice as the house that Mike Davis, if you know that name, he was the replacement coach for Bobby Knight. And uh, my goodness, that year when we first moved to Bloomington in 2002, I bet I heard the phrase, it was a rebuilding year, at least 100 times. Actually, I bet I heard that about 100 times every year that we lived there, actually. We're talking about sports metaphors today. When it comes time to picking teams, can you think back to that moment when you were in middle school? Some of your hands just got sweaty right now. You think about that moment in gym class. Am I going to be picked last? Will I be picked first? That didn't so much cause me to sweat. It wasn't the am I going to be picked last. I usually was kind of a middle of the pick guy. 
But for me, not so much gym class because that was co-ed, but when we were playing basketball on the playground, playground ball, I always got a little sweaty when it was time to go shirts or skins because I was that kid that was kind of scrawny and I did not want to take my shirt off on the playground. Jesus picked a team, didn't he? He picked 12 individuals. He could have dressed a basketball team with subs with his disciples. He could have fielded a football team if they played both sides of the ball, even after he lost Judas to the injured reserve list. Today I want to share with you two observations on Jesus' team. And then I want to share with you four coaching tips as you pick your team. By the way, I'll give you a hint right on the front end. It's really not your team. It's God's team, but he wants to use you in the process. So, two observations on Jesus' team, four coaching tips as you pick your team. Let's start with Jesus' team. Again, Jesus is the master of looking through the crowd and locking eyes with the one. We see this even in the language, this describing how he picked his team. Let's start with uh, John chapter 1. Jesus sees into a guy named Nathaniel. He sees his soul. Check this out. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. He sees beyond the facade and he looks into his soul. And Nathanael is a little bit rocked by this. He says, how do you even know me? And Jesus answered, well, I I saw you. I looked through the crowd and I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael answered or declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. You talk about a recruiting speech? Check this out. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You talk about a recruiting speech, right? Here's the observations about Jesus as he's picking his team. First of all, if you're taking notes, write this down. Right is only right in hindsight. The team that Jesus picked, we have to look to the end of their life and see that God used them in some big ways that they were right picks. Early days, they did not look so right. Let's start, though, with the end in mind. You're probably familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. There's a lot that's wrong in this, including they're not lounging at a Roman triclinian table. They're sitting at more of what Leonardo da Vinci would have known of as a table. But we're not going to critique the painting. Rather, I want to just kind of use this. Let's work our way from our left to our right toward Jesus. And let's look at how some of these guys ended their game. They left it all on the field. Let's start all the way down on the end. Uh, Legend tells us how Nathaniel, how he ended his life, how he left it all on the field for God. Nathaniel is also known as Bartholomew. And Christian tradition tells us that he had widespread missionary travels. He was all over the world. Actually, tradition tells us that after Jesus ascended and went into heaven, that the disciples actually cast lots. They kind of took the map and they divided the whole known world up and said, who's going to go here, who's going to go here, who's going to go here, and then they did it. Well, Nathaniel uh, went with Thomas to India. Then he went back, tradition tells us, to Armenia. Then also to Ethiopia. Then he went to southern Arabia. 
And there are a whole bunch of accounts about how he died, but all of them say that he died as a martyr for Jesus. He left it all on the field for God. James, again, working left to right. This James is one of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. And there's some confusion sometimes about which is which. But this James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. And the Jewish historian Josephus reports to us that he was stoned and then he was clubbed to death. He left it all in the field for God. He left it all in the court for Jesus. Andrew, again, working left to right. Andrew went to what was known as the land of the man-eaters. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? You and I, if we grew up under the Cold War, would recognize it as the former Soviet Union bloc countries. He got on a ship, and tradition tells us that he lands on the edge of the Black Sea in southern, it's been in the news lately, Ukraine. Actually, Andrew is the patron saint of both Ukraine and Russia because tradition tells us that he sailed up a river. It's called the Dnieper River, and he reached actually the future site of what I grew up hearing as Kiev. I hear news reports here recently, they're calling it Kiev. And tradition tells us that he erected a cross on the site where today's St. Andrew's Church of Kiev currently stands. And he prophesied there the foundation of a great Christian city. Because of his connection to Kiev, his connection to Ukraine, Andrew is known as the patron saint both of Ukraine and Russia. Actually, Russia has the St. Andrew's cross on its naval flag. Isn't that interesting? Christians claim him to be the first to bring the gospel to their land. He preached also in Asia Minor. He preached in modern-day Turkey, and then he preached in Greece. And it's said that he was crucified like his Savior. We'll skip Judas. If you know your New Testament, you know what happened to him. The next in line here is Peter. While we're talking about Peter, we should also talk about Paul because they both died in a similar fashion. They were both martyred in Rome about 65 or 66 A.D., somewhere in that range. Underneath the persecution of Roman Emperor Nero, Paul was beheaded. We read that in the New Testament. Peter was crucified. But here's the story. According to tradition, he wasn't crucified right side up because that's how his Savior died. He said, I'm not worthy of that death. Turn me around. Turn me upside down. I want to be crucified upside down because I don't want to die the same way my Savior did. John, we'll skip him. He's actually the only one of the 12 that didn't die a martyr's death. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, but it's said, Christian tradition, that's after he was cast into boiling oil in Rome. He didn't die. Left it all on the court for Jesus. We could keep talking. We could go through each one of these. Actually, 11 of the 12, according to Christian tradition, died a martyr's death, including Matthias, who was the apostle that was actually chosen to replace Judas. And tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew, and then he died by burning. They left it all on the court for Jesus. Man, they ended well. But remember what we said, right is only right in hindsight. It didn't look that way at the beginning of the game they played for God. We've all done some silly stuff. 
And somewhere between the beginning of our story and the legacy we choose to leave behind, there's some mistakes that get made in there. This happened for the disciples as well. We've all had embarrassing moments. I bet I was talking about gym class earlier. I bet you've got some embarrassing stories to tell from that era. I was reading about embarrassing things that have happened uh, just this past week, and I read a story about, well, I'll use their words. This is somebody who's talking about working out at the gym, and she says, I thought this bench near some cardio equipment was fixed to the ground for some reason, and I grabbed onto it to stretch my shoulders out. Then I flew backwards into a row of eight stationary bikes, knocking them over like dominoes. Embarrassing, right? I read a story this past week about Easter. We're talking about Easter. It's coming up in five weeks, and this pastor who was getting ready to do a baptism Easter time, and the gal was a little bit larger than he had expected, and her body displaced water more than he had anticipated in the baptistry, enough so that the water came up over his waders. And then she's up, and we all clap and celebrate, and she leaves the baptistry, and he realizes there's so much water down in my waders now, I can't move. I'm kind of pinned in place. And so he had to skinny out of his waders in his underwear in front of an Easter Sunday crowd and head on out. That's embarrassing. The disciples, they did some embarrassing things. They embarrassed themselves. They, oh my goodness, We're not exactly the A-team. Have you ever wondered why God chooses the people he chooses? Why did God choose these disciples? Well, because he wants to get the glory, even through imperfect people like you and I and like the disciples. The disciples were actually pretty unimpressive men by human standards. Not a one of them would have been voted most likely to succeed. These were not the best and the brightest guys. Jesus did not recruit his disciples from the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of Israel. But we have to assume he could have. He chose not to. He didn't go after the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He went after tradesmen. He went after common folk. In Mark chapter 4, verse 13, we see exactly how common they were. Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? Jesus taught in parables a lot. How then will you understand any parable? You kind of catch that the teacher is a little bit frustrated here with his star pupils. It's a little bit like the teacher looking out at the crowd and saying, hey, when was the war of 1812? Nobody answers. It's crickets, right? Or who, who's buried in Grant's tomb? No response. Or, hey, Magellan made three trips around the world, and on one of them he died. Which trip was it that he died on? And nobody can answer that question. Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, and he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Obviously, this is a metaphor. Well, the disciples, they don't get it. Mark chapter 8, check this out. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? They heard something about the yeast of the Pharisees. Now they're talking about grandma's cooking. Why do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? He goes on to explain. Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever lived, and he's stuck with a class of boneheads. But skip on down to Matthew chapter 15, the next few verses, check this out. Explain the parables to us is what the disciples ask. And he says, are you still so dull? 
This is what Jesus says to the disciples. Let's go back to the beginning. Jesus is picking his team. Let's see where he picks Peter. The apostle Peter, the guy who at the end of his life, oh, he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to identify with the way his Savior died. This is his calling. This is his recruiting speech. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Jesus looks through the crowd, and he sees the one. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus looks And he sees. And then we see this again in John chapter 1. Jesus looked at him and he said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Jesus looks through the crowd of some of the best and the brightest and he sees the available. He sees the willing. He sees 12 men who immediately say, Yeah, we'll follow you. I mean, what else do we have to do? By the way, Jesus was a tough coach to follow. You think that Bobby Knight and Gene Cady were hard to follow, hard to live up to their coaching standards? Listen, Jesus' message wasn't so much, here's five steps to living your best life now. Uh -uh. It was more, hey, you, take up your cross daily. Die to self. Then you can follow me. And the crowd, the crowd doesn't always get this. In John chapter 6, actually you could read through that whole chapter and you can see the ebb and the flow of men and women's applause. And you see it wane. It begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 people who doesn't want a free lunch. And it reminds me a little bit of the applause that's going on during the game yesterday, the crowds at Gainbridge Fieldhouse during that IU game. Through the whole game until the last two minutes, I had a friend that was there and he said, in the last two minutes, you kind of heard the crowd fade. Jesus follows uh, the feeding of the 5,000 with walking on water and the crowd is cheering and then he follows that with a teaching that it sounds like he's saying, You need to be a cannibal to follow me. He's talking about communion. You and I, with 2,000 years of church history on our side, and some of us having spent time in the church for a long time, we look at that text and we know exactly what he's talking about. But have you ever thought about how weird it must sound to your non-Christian friends if you talk about communion? We eat the body of Christ. We drink the blood of Christ. This happened in the New Testament time as well. Let's look at that passage where Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And the crowd that has been applauding, wait wait a minute, what? They go silent. The heading in my Bible then, if you're reading through John chapter 6, The next heading says, many disciples desert Jesus. They walk away. Check this out. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They walk away. This is hard. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? In other words, uh, Peter is saying, listen, we've got nowhere else to go through a human lens. If this were 
recruiting a team. This is a building year, right? The disciples were all wrong. Second observation about Jesus' team. He picked the B team, right? Check this out. After three years of intense coaching, in Luke chapter 22, the night before the cross, Thursday night, well, let's read about Peter. The Lord turned. He looks through the crowd, and he locks eyes with Peter. Peter has just betrayed him three times. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The rooster has just crowed. Peter, oh my goodness, he's still the B team, right? But in Jesus' upside-down economy of life, look at this, look at how Jesus views. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. I bet that was ringing in the disciples' ears at the end of their life as they were dying because of their faith. And in the age to come, though, eternal life. I bet that was ringing in their ears as well. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. God's economy has kind of an upside-down view of life. By the way, next week, don't miss next week, we're talking about the wrong one. Can I preach just a little bit? Who inside of your sphere of influence might be the next Peter? Who might be the next Nathaniel? You look at them and you think, well, I don't know. I don't know if they measure up to God's kingdom. But what if God wants to use them the same way he used Peter? What if God wants to use them the same way he used Nathaniel, or we know him also as Bartholomew? Jesus uses you, hear me, to reach them. And then they, in turn, God would use them to do amazing things for him. So here's the question. Who's your one? I know that the question that you're asking is this. Why should I focus on hashtag who's your one? Why should I focus on that? Well, here, let me tell you very plainly. It's because you have one life. We're going to be talking about this a lot this year. You have one life, and by that, there's kind of a twofold way to view this. You have one life to live for God. You have one life to invest for his kingdom. Are you going to make it count? You have one life. So in turn, who is the one life that you're investing in? Hashtag, who's your one? Who's your one life that when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, you think, oh my goodness, they're far from God, and it drives you crazy to think about that? Who's your one? Hear me, God doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. He wants to use you, and here's the amazing thing, you don't have to worry about being qualified to be used of God. The Bible is filled with people who were just the B-team kind of people. And God used them in amazing ways because they were willing. They said, yes. Look at this list. Job in the Old Testament, he said, I abhor myself. Moses said, pick somebody else because I'm no good at speaking. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. David, the man after God's own heart, cried out, my sin is ever before me. Peter said, depart from me, for I'm a wicked man. Paul said, the evil which I would not do. That's exactly what 
but I keep getting drugged back to do. So can we talk about your team? Can we talk about the team that God is calling you to recruit for him? Real quick, four coaching tips. Number one, don't overthink your picks. Don't overthink this thing. You don't have to feel the burden of picking an A team. We're in the middle of March Madness now, or it's just beginning. Bracketology is the the term. Hear me, upsets are the norm. It's the same in God's kingdom. Oftentimes, the people we think are the best and the brightest, they flame out or they burn out or they just plain quit. You don't have to feel the burden of you having to pick the A team. You just need to be faithful. You just need to be faithful to the call of God on your life to share the good news of who he is with the people that you meet. As you're picking your team, God's team, here's a second coaching tip. You aren't the best coach. God is. The scriptures are full of stories about God's upside-down economy of things. One of my favorite books is A Tale of Three Kings. It's written by a guy by the name of Gene Edwards. And he talks about these three kings in the Old Testament. King David, we know about him, a man after God's own heart. Then you've got King Saul, who's the upstart king. He's quite crazy. He throws spears at David, the man after God's own heart. Then you've got Absalom, David's son, who's an upstart king. I love this quote from the book. By the way, if you have a boss that is a jerk, I would recommend that book to you to read. It asks the question, who then can know who is a David and who is a Saul? God knows, but he won't tell. God alone knows the condition of a heart. Are you so certain your king is a Saul and not a David that you're willing to take the position of God and to go to war against your Saul? Well, if so, then thank God you do not live in the days of crucifixion. That's a pretty good quote. Only God knows, but he doesn't tell. I did a retreat with a bunch of pastors several years ago in the uh, Medicine Bow mountain range of southern Wyoming, and I'll never forget sitting around the campfire at night. What do you think happens when a bunch of pastors get together? We talk about our churches, right? We talk about you. We vent a little bit. We share hurt. We share dreams and This was happening around the circle that night. We'd all read this book very recently. And we were telling stories about, hey, there's this guy in my church. I don't know, is he a Saul or is he a David? I don't know. I'm not sure if I can tell yet. Or this guy, this young guy on my staff, he's he's very talented, but I can't tell. Is he a David or an Absalom? This is the kind of conversation we're having. And it drove us crazy as we're sitting there thinking, well, we don't know. God knows. And he's not telling yet. If you're picking teams, don't overthink your picks. You're not the best coach. It's not your job or mine to stack God's team with the people that we think are the best or the the right players. So what are you left to do? Well, can I encourage you? Cast a wide net. There's your third coaching tip. Let's go back to the beginning. We looked at part of this passage already. When Jesus was recruiting his team, Peter and Andrew, look at what he says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. 
At once they left their nets and they followed him. And then from there, the story repeats with two other brothers, James and John. They leave their nets, and it says they immediately leave the boat, and they leave their father, and they follow Jesus. Where did they go? They followed him to do what? To fish for men. Can I ask you an honest question? Are you doing that? Are you fishing for men and women? Are you doing this as an act of service, an act of worship before your God? You know, there was a study that came out just a few years ago by Lifeway Research, and there's some big takeaways from this. Here's one of the ones I found interesting. It says this, unchurched people are not coming back to church. 66% of unchurched people say they're unlikely to attend a church service anytime soon. 49% very unlikely to attend church service anytime soon. In other words, gone are the days of driving the fishing boat down the river and the fish just jumping into the boat. That's not happening. And then check this out. Unchurched people are interested, though, in faith. A whopping 79% said, if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind talking about it with them. That's where you come in. That's where I come in. Hashtag, who's your one? Contrast that truth, though, with this, that more than half of churchgoers have not shared the gospel recently. 55% actually say that they've not shared their faith with someone how to become a Christian in the last six months. Could I suggest to you that we have to cast a wider net? Jesus did this. He preached to the 5,000, right? So leverage your resources. Last week you heard Gary Johnson who came and preached for us. He was talking about the Great Commission, and he was saying, as you go, you're called to make disciples of all nations. As you go, I was going this past week. It's so hard for a pastor. We get, sometimes get stuck inside these walls. I mean, I, I'm busy taking care, serving, and pastoring, and leading, and encouraging, and studying. And every once in a while, I just have to say, listen, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to at least go study somewhere else so I can get outside the walls of this space. I was doing that Monday morning last week in a local coffee shop. And while I was there, I thought, I'll just put this up on social media and just kind of share that I'm there. Here's the post. I'm drinking coffee at Bika Coffee. I love this place. It's downtown Noblesville. Studying this morning at one of my favorite study spots. If you're into live-edge furniture and a great cup of coffee or food, Bika is your jam. Also, I'm excited about our new sermon series kicking off this weekend adventure. Wear your favorite college team gear and join us for hashtag one. And then the comments. It was so fun to see this. I had connections that were being made between local artists, local woodworkers, people who source live-edge lumber, and people who do that kind of work. It was so fun just to kind of watch that happen here in the feed. And it got me thinking, are we casting a wide enough net for Jesus? And I'm not just talking about using social media. Then on Thursday... I uh, went in to study in the same coffee shop, and as I'm walking in, I bumped into a couple from our church who was already sitting there. They were actually on their way to serve, do something uh, to serve our food pantry here at Venture. And they're sitting there eating, and, and they said, hey, we're here because of your recommendation. We saw that, and we thought we want to check this place out. And I thought to myself, are we leaving influence on the table? If we were to live our lives out loud for God the same way I do about my favorite coffee shop, I just wonder how God would use that. Are we leaving influence on the table? 
as you're choosing your team, as you're recruiting, actually, God's team. Here's the last encouragement. Narrow your focus. Jesus picked 12. He could handle 12. Almost. One got away. Let's, you and me, start, though, with one. Hashtag Hoosier One. Let me give you some strategy on that. As you focus on your one, that one person that God is calling you to reach out to, to encourage, here's a three-step strategy. Number one is simply to identify. Identify your one life, the one life that God has given you to live for him. And connect that with your one life. Who is that person that God is calling you to go after? By the way, the right one, that's the title of this message, the right one is the one that you identify today or tomorrow or this week, sometime during the next five weeks. The right one is the one you identify. Step number two, invest. Invest in their life. Show them your life. Again, the right one is the one that you invest in today. And then invite Invite your one life to do life alongside of you, to do life together. Bring them into your just world as you live. Identify, invest, and invite. Speaking of invitation, don't miss the opportunity out in the lobby on the way out. I bet you noticed the Easter display out here. By the way, Easter, oh, this is a big time for people who are far from God. Studies have told us that, you know, if there's one or two times a year that somebody who's far from God is willing to come to church with you, you invite them, Easter and Christmas are big times. So there's tools out there for you at your disposal. If you know somebody inside your sphere of influence who maybe is far from God, how many of you like peeps? I don't like peeps. But I love them as an invitation tool that says, sup, my peeps. Easter egg hunt, Saturday, April 16th at 11 a.m. You could use this as an opportunity to simply invest in somebody and to invite them to come and join us for an Easter egg hunt. We're just going to have fun out here on the back lawn of the church. Maybe if they play in the backyard with us, they'll come in and join us for worship sometime. As you identify them, as you invest in them, as you invite them to come and be a part of what God is doing in your life. Toward that end, we're going to research you, uh, resource you every week with a different invitation tool. Take as many of these as you want. They'll be out here on the table in the lobby. Use these as a tool to identify and then invest in your one, hashtag who's your one, and to invite them to come and be a part of what God is doing in your life. Would you stand up with me right now? We're just going to continue in worship. As we do that, you know what a reticular activator is? It's this thing in your brain. It's when you put on a Hoosier t-shirt, now everywhere you look, you see a Hoosier t-shirt, right? It's when you buy a new car, now everywhere you see on the road, you see that same car driving around. It's because you see what you're looking for. This week, would you think about the one? I hope you see what you're looking for. Your neighbor, your coworker, your family member who happens to be today far from God, Hashtag, who's your one? Identify. Invest. Invite.
Would you bow your head with me? God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to love you and to be loved by you. As we continue in worship right now, just make that reticular activator start to buzz. That space in our brain that we see stuff through. Begin to identify the one. In each of us, you're calling us to leave the 99 behind and go after. We pray that in your name, in Jesus' name.